Well, the world is full of competing visions of human flourishing. What really is the best way to live? How can people be the happiest? What is it that's going to make human life the best it can possibly be? James, in his letter to the scattered churches, is holding forth one ideal of what is going to make uh, human beings the most healthy, the most happy, and the, in the best condition uh, of any other option. And uh, his vision is that uh, the human flourishing means that we'll be united with Christ, we'll live for heaven, we'll have a life within us that grows and bears fruit, and that's not the only view. And today in chapter 4, James goes into battle, really, with a competing view of uh, what it means to be human and what makes somebody happy. And there are some within the churches, our church, other churches, that are trying to have it both ways, that are trying to be God's friend and a friend of the world. And that clearly won't work, and that's exactly what James points out here. So let's read in James chapter 4, beginning verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if I was to summarize this in one sentence, I would say that pride, driven by untamed desires, causes conflict with other people and ultimately with God. Your uncontrolled desires cause breakdowns in relationships with other people and with God. And that's what pride looks like. So the first thing you need to see, if that's true, is that pride manifests itself in untamed desires. Notice how he starts. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain. And then he goes on to say that you have, or you ask and do not receive because you ask it, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so you've got all kinds of language in there that describes this uncontrollable passion inside a person, these desires that cause them 
to act in a certain way. The word passion here that shows up twice is the same word that we get our word hedonism from, which is an obsession with pleasure. It is the untamed desire for physical and emotional pleasure. And so that is what is driving this person. And that's what's driving this vision of human flourishing. When you think about all the things that you hear, all the commercials that you're going to see for this Christmas season, what are they selling? They are selling pleasure. They're selling happiness. If you just acquire this, if you just get this, then you'll be happy. So James talks about your hedonism, your desire for pleasure. Then he just uses straight up the word desire, which is normally translated lust. And so you've got passions, you've got you know, lust, you've got people investing themselves in pleasure and just unleashing their desires, and that is the way that they choose to live. And the problem with that is that that has invaded the church. That is part of what the church experiences uh, when people sell themselves out for pleasure. And I just have to say, Christians around the world don't have this problem because their lives are not so easy as ours. This is very easy for us to have uh, to pursue this kind of pleasure and really get off on the wrong track. If you continue reading in verse 6, then you'll notice that these pleasures tend to all roll into a ball that he calls pride. He said, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if you're like me, you probably think of proud people as those people who are full of themselves. They're the kind of people who walk into a room and they start talking about how great they are. And none of us like those kind of people, right? And I, frankly, I mean, that's, my, that's the definition I generally work from. And I like it because if that's my definition of pride, they, they walk in the room and start talking about themselves, I don't do that. So therefore, I'm not proud, right? And that's, uh, that's how I would like to think of myself. But he suggests that this is, uh, this is sort of a trick we plan ourselves. Because the people who give themselves to their pleasures and desires demonstrate a pride that, while it can be understated, is extremely common. They make themselves the center of their own universe. That's the essence of pride there. And as long as they're indulging their pleasures, they may not even look like what we would consider as stereotypical proud people. And so James invites us to stop and examine ourselves and examine our relationship to pleasure. What is it that I'm really after? What is it that makes me happy? And see, if I evaluate life based on whether I'm comfortable or happy or at ease, and it's only good if I am, I may be proud. Because if we think that nothing 
should interrupt our happiness, our pleasure, and our comfort, that's exactly what we are. We're proud. And so these untamed desires sort of display that we are proud. And when that pride does that for us, when it um, uh, causes us to live in such a way that our, our pursuit of pleasure is unbridled, then you can bet that that will cause quarrels and conflict with other people. Pride will cause conflict in our relationships with other people. No question. I mean, that's how he starts. What, is, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't attain, so you fight and quarrel. I mean, look at that list. You've got war, coveting, fighting, quarreling, the whole thing. And it's the effect of these desires playing out where I can't get enough. And these people who are having this problem are supposed to be Christians. See, this is the trouble. They're trying to have it both ways. To say, I follow Christ on the way to the cross and I want to be comfortable, have an easy life, and enjoy pleasure. And I'm afraid it does not work that way. The words seem almost too harsh to be true. There are quarrels and fights among you in the church. (laughs) He goes so far as to say there's a threat of murder. I mean, these people are having it out. I mean, I've heard of church fights that are almost this bad. And so the quarreling and the fighting amongst ourselves are driven by our desires. Things get in the way of our pleasure and our happiness, and we don't like it. And see, the issue here then is that we are working with the weapons of the natural world. We are are trying to live In the church, we're trying to live spiritually with the tools of the world. I mean, this is where, this is how the world operates. Through power and intimidation and strength and aggressiveness and belligerency and bullying to accomplish their ends. And I just want to say, that will not accomplish anything that God is after. I hope you can see that. That is the demonic wisdom that ends up in strife and contention that we saw in the last chapter. And now they're fighting and quarreling and murdering, and it's even worse. I just have to say, this is, this is no joke. I mean, it almost is so, seems so overstated that it's a joke. But it isn't. The way of the world The way of power and privilege is not the way of the cross. And so we cannot simultaneously pursue pleasure or even pursue uh, power in an unbridled way and pursue love for other people. 
Your pleasures will be the death of your relationships. Your conflict will come because people will get in the way of your pleasure. And this happens at families, this happens at work, this happens at church. Other people are going to work against your pursuit of pleasure and happiness. And so then you'll need to exercise some sort of power or authority or bullying or some other technique that is not love. And that will be the breakdown. And that's where he starts, is that there's all of this tension because we're pursuing our pleasures. Because we don't want other people to get in the way of our pursuit of happiness, which, which in essence is pride because it places me at the center of my world. But, <laughs> wait, there's more. In fact, that's not even the worst of it. If you can, if you can imagine wars and strife and uh, coveting and warring and murder as not the worst of it, then you're beginning to get the picture. Because the worst of it has to do with pride destroying your relationship with God. Pride causes conflict with God, not just with people. And it does this in several ways. Pride and the pursuit of pleasure will ruin your prayer life. He says in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so what, he's, what he goes for first here is prayer. Your pride stops you from asking first off. Or to say it another way, pride is inversely proportional to prayer. The more pride, the less prayer. The less pride, the more prayer. Your pride and your prayer are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And that actually is one of the ways that you can say, is this me in this text? Am I like this? More pride, less prayer. Less pride, more prayer. Then it's not just that you pray less, but this pride and pursuit of pleasure just keeps you off track about what you pray for. See, he's talking about people who orient their prayers around what they want, around what will make them happy. As though prayer was a you know, a Christmas list that we send to Santa Claus. And hopefully he'll give us what we want. And that's not anything like biblical prayer. You don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Because James says that these people are motivated in their prayers by their pleasures. They are using, they're trying to use God to get to their pleasures. 
And prayerlessness and a broken prayer life may be the least of your worries if you're a proud, pleasure-seeking person because you have to look at what is next. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He calls them adulterous people. He call, I mean, that is from... God's point of view about the worst thing he could call you. In Isaiah chapter 54, he says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he has called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife, of youth when she is cast off, says your God. God loves his people like a husband loves a wife. And that's really what, why marriage is important to Christians. It's not merely the marriage institution itself, it's because that marriage institution is a picture of the love that God has for his people. He loves us like a husband loves a wife. You're familiar with the, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 where uh, he talks about husbands and wife and he says, I'm speaking of Christ in the church. There is this love relationship, this covenant union between God and his people that... Uh, is affected here when we pursue our pleasures, when we harbor pride and make ourselves at the center. All throughout the prophets, we see God use this language of his people being adulterers and adulteresses. I mean, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20 says, Surely as a treacherous or unfaithful wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous or unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. God uses this language when he's talking about uh, his people running after another God. They change their gods. They go from the God of the Bible to some other God. Ezekiel and Jeremiah do the, routinely compare spiritual departure from God to adultery. Hosea, in fact, marries a prostitute as an object lesson for Israel about how they have forsaken God. Jesus calls his contemporaries an adulterous generation in Matthew 12 and Matthew 16. So when James says, you adulterers, and adulteresses. He is importing this boatload of biblical background into his letter to say God's people are forsaking God for their pleasures. 
They're forsaking God and pursuing another God. As though some other God is going to make them happy. If there ever was an expression that would indicate that God wants your affection and he wants your love, not just your intellectual assent, this is it. He understands a relationship with you as a love relationship. God wants to be the lover of your soul. And what James is calling out is the fact that our souls love something else besides God. God does not want a mere nod or a religious performance or some sort of good works to try and balance some scale. He's not interested in that. He wants your heart. When you give your heart to someone else, to another God, or to pleasure, you are committing spiritual adultery. And there is probably no worse accusation than that. And that's where James levels uh, the accusation against uh, Christians. Think about it. I mean, if you're going to, if it's, if adultery is a metaphor for us departing from God in real life, <laughs> in a marriage, seldom does an affair happen just in a moment. People don't wake up one day and say to themselves, I'm going to ruin my life today. Instead, there is generally a slow series of compromises. There is a slow series of uh, incidences where your affections get turned little by little to a different person from your spouse. The same is true with spiritual adultery. I mean, God knows this. That's, that's why he gives us a, a lot of these parameters in the scriptures. I mean, just for instance, in the Old Testament, God gave an early warning to Israel not to intermarry with other nations. It had nothing to do with those marriages themselves. The reason every time was that marrying into other nations there was step one in the slide to worshiping their gods. That was what was at issue, was spiritual adultery. And so by giving their passions full reign here, they're being unfaithful to God. You know, it may not be exactly the same idolatrous catastrophe that ancient Israel and Judah created, that the prophets spoke against, but it is spiritual treason nonetheless. In this spiritual uh, rejection of God, a spiritual treason leads us to the next statement. And James is, James is playing hardball here. If in chapter 2, when they're talking about faith, Abraham was called a friend of God because of his faith, now people who are friends of the world because of their pleasures are becoming enemies of God. And if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. 
The sworn enemy of God is someone who forms a friendship with the world. And so what does that look like? I mean, how do you be a friend of the world, right? Friend of the world is someone who spends time apart from God in the company of others. Those who have the earthly perspective of wisdom, you might say, that we saw in chapter 3, verse 15. It's the same kind of thing that we see in 1 John when John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see why this is such a a spiritual and faithfulness issue. You either have love for the world or you have love for God. You don't have both. For all, he continues in chapter in 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so John gives us some help of what it means to be a friend of the world. The friend of the world sort of falls for or or gets involved with the world. Their affections are drawn out in three different areas. The first is the desires of the flesh. This is uh, what uh, led to sin in James 1, when sin gives birth to death, or when lust gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, uh, gives birth to death. There is a free-for-all, you might say, of sexual expression or sensual expression, if you want to broaden it, that is very much a part of our world and very much the desire of the flesh. And very, you know, it's... There are very strong feelings about um, all things sexual, and justifiably so. This is at the heart, in some respect, of loving the world. The second area, John says, are the desires of the eyes. Lusting for things that look good. (laughs) Maybe Maybe it's a new house, or maybe it's a donut. I don't know, maybe it's a week in the sun. Maybe it's a new uh, outfit. But things to look good and to be perceived as somebody, to be perceived as um, somebody special, to have that perception that um, I'm important is the uh, lust of the eyes. And then there is a pride in possession. Wanting people to notice your things, your designer clothes, your car, your house, your whatever it is. Hoping that people think more highly of you because of what you have accumulated. And so if the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of possessions are priorities for you, you're becoming a friend of the world. Now, you're not just like instantly becoming a friend. That's a thing. It's like that adultery thing. You slowly begin spending time with another set of friends and you neglect the old friend who is God. And when you do that, friendship with the world 
then means you declare yourself an enemy of God. The, the person who's a friend of the world is a self-declared enemy. Now nobody, nobody would do that in their right mind. But rather I think we slide into it. We watch enough commercials. We talk to enough co-workers. We know, we know it. Before we know it, we've slipped into some kind of friendship with the world that excludes God. And he, in effect, then, has become our enemy. Now, I don't know much, okay, but I know I don't want God for my enemy. Yet, it's very easy to slide into a situation where God becomes my enemy. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story because the love of God is so great. The love of God is so strong that he is jealous over his people. That's what it says as he continues. God paid for us at the cost of his own son. So it follows in that he cares what happens to us. So I think that because he loves us, because he cares, spiritual adultery is the perfect illustration. After all, it would be it would be the sign of a highly defective relationship if a spouse was not jealous when their lover was being wooed by somebody else. See, because jealousy does not mean that I want what someone else has. It doesn't mean that uh, I want what I can't have. Uh, in, in this situation, when it says he... Uh, jealously pursues us, it means that God is eager to guard what is important to him. Just like I am eager to guard what is important to me. And so I'm jealous over Marcia. That, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing in that instance. It's a good thing when God is jealous over us. It is the nature of this covenant relationship that God has established with us. And so this is what the scripture says, that he um, yearns jealously for us. And then he goes on to, to, say, I mean, to say that he gives grace because there's grace that is really enough to meet the demands of this jealousy. There's grace that's going to pull us back. There's grace that's going to keep us close. Our God is a consuming fire. And his demand for our exclusive allegiance may seem at some times terrifying. But he is a consuming fire and he is a merciful and gracious and all-loving God who willingly supplies all that we need to meet the all-encompassing demands of his jealousy. And so this 
jealousy of God. He, he yearns jealously for the spirits placed within us. He wants us back. He doesn't want us to run to another lover. And so he earnestly desires to have us back. And then we hit in verse 6, the crescendo. The crescendo is very simply, <laughs> he gives more grace. He gives more grace. I, I could just read that all day. He gives more grace. Grace for what? Grace to stop us from being unfaithful to God. Grace to stop cheating on God. Grace to break off friendship with the world. Remember in chapter 2, we talked about faith as a, as a faithful response. It's, it, it, we had even in chapter 2, James had in chapter 2, the, in mind this relationship of love that we have with God. Where we remain faithful to him. That's what he wants back. That's what he's jealous over. That's what he gives us grace to return to. And he gives us more grace. Part of that grace is the true news of the gospel that God will resist you if you try and have it both ways. That he will make your life hard if you're hoping you can pursue pleasure and the cross at the same time. You can count on life being hard. You can count on receiving the consequences of your choices. You can count on your theatrics, pretending to be something you're not, being exhausting if you are trying to pursue God and pleasure at the same time, if you are trying to be humble and religious, or excuse me, pr proud and religious at the same time. Romans chapter 1 talks about the process of people bent on their own pleasure being left to the sentence of their own foolishness. That's what he's telling us here. He resists the proud, those who pursue their own pleasure. That's the true news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that he gives grace to the humble. He will give you what you need to break away from the old life, from the sin that hangs on, from the affections that draw you back again and again and again. This verse 6 is a quote from Proverbs 3, 34. He gives a citation to tell, from, from the book of Proverbs to tell us that God will not allow a rival. God will place himself against the person who is proud, pursuing their own pleasures. Toward the scorner, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor, Proverbs 3.34. The world is full of competing visions of human flourishing. What really is the best way to live how can human beings be happiest? You need to know from James 
that one of these visions receives grace. The other receives direct opposition from God himself. One is proud, the other is humble. One of these visions cozies up to the world and ignores God and thereby declares itself an enemy of God. The other becomes a friend of God by faith. One vision invites quarrels and fights and wars and even murder because people get between someone and their pleasure. The other vision sows in peace and yields a harvest of righteousness. The funny thing is there there isn't a middle ground. God is all in and loving you, being jealous for you, remaining faithful to you. The question is whether you'll remain faithful to him. Will you be all in in loving him? Or will you try and hedge your bets? Or will you try and play the field? You see, that's what the book of James has been all about. May God grant us grace to be humble and respond to God in faith and in love so that we're not friends of the world. We're not adulterers and adulteresses. Rather, We love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May God grant us grace to do that. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, this can be uh, such a struggle for us. We want to stop struggling. We want to be humble and receive your grace, and we want to break it off. Father, I know that there is at least somebody listening to me that needs to break it off with the world, needs to go all in loving you back. Thank you that you're jealous for us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you. Thank you that the most certain way to the eternal happiness of our hearts is to be madly in love with you. So God, would you help us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.